Hi, and welcome back to the Wild EM Podcast, where we are all about bringing you better care out there. On today's show, we are following up on a recent episode on cervical collar injuries. And we are going to frame today's discussion around a case. The other day, I was known biking near my house on a fairly technical section of rocks and branches, when all of a sudden I see another biker in front of me go over the bars. Now, good thing I had my medical kit from episode one, and I approached the patient. But before I can even get near him, he was trying to sit up by himself, at which point I obviously tackled him back down to the ground, yelling, do not move your neck. Now, of course, we were just the two of us, and a few kilometers away from the trailhead, and it was getting dark. On a pretty cold day. Only a few degrees above freezing, actually. Oh, and he did tell me he was a diabetic and did not have any snacks on him. But I was having none of it. I was immobilizing his neck with both my hands and I would never let go because that's how it's done. Or is it? Now, most patients who present to the emergency department after trauma do not have a spine injury, and of those who do, rarely does this injury involve the spinal cord. Despite this, an injury to the spinal cord can lead to irreversible badness, so we do not want to miss this or to be the cause of a bad outcome for our patient. So here's how we are going to approach the topic on cervical spine injuries today. First of all, we will take a look at the literature reviewing that delayed and worsening spinal injuries do in fact exist, despite them being pretty rare. So there is cause for concern here when someone injures their C-spine as to them deteriorating and suffering irreversible spine damage. Second, we will ask ourselves if the application of a rigid cervical collar is the way to go to prevent these injuries from happening and see if there's any evidence to back up this claim. Third, after looking at any potential benefits of cervical spine immobilization, we will look at how these devices can harm our patients, especially in the wilderness setting. And finally, we will put this all together in a practical approach to cervical spine injuries in the wilderness. Number one, are worsening spinal injuries present after trauma caused by unwanted spinal motion? If we go all the way back to medical articles from the 1960s, the answer is undoubtedly yes. And here's a quote from one of these articles. Some were able to report activities such as walking or definitive use of hands following spinal injury and who subsequently had lost the ability to use these members owing to developing paralysis. The paralysis occurred in each case as a consequence of failure to recognize the injury to the spinal column and to protect the patient from the consequences of their unstable spine. He may thus have essayed to walk or even sit up for a drink. It may have occurred when the patient was being moved from the site of an accident to a hospital. End quote. Now this way of thinking is what drove many guidelines at the time to adopt the cervical immobilization protocols with rigid cervical collars that we still see today. The logic behind these recommendations was that, in rare circumstances, injured patients were having delayed or worsening neurological symptoms after a spinal injury. Therefore, excess motion must have caused these injuries and therefore, to prevent these injuries, rigid immobilization must be the treatment. But more recently, there is more agreement that neurological deterioration after the injury is likely caused by inflammation or bleeding in the spinal cord after the initial trauma, rather than some undesired motion of the spine. An article called 
Early Secondary Neurologic Deterioration After Blunt Spinal Trauma, a review of the literature published in 2015, tried to take a closer look at this. In this review of worsening and delayed spinal injuries after the initial trauma, most patients deteriorated while waiting in the emergency department in between assessments without any further motion nor any clear cause. The data from most of these cases is incomplete, so we can only speculate on the exact cause of the deterioration. But in my mind, deteriorating between assessments while lying down in the emergency department makes this less probable that unwanted spinal motion caused these injuries rather than a worsening secondary injury such as bleeding, inflammation, or edema, or even a hypoxic injury to the spinal column, all of which would not have been prevented by rigid immobilization. To further muddy the waters, in the same article, some worsening injuries were described after precipitating events such as applying a collar. But out of these 12 events described, five were with patients already in spinal precautions fully in place. And despite this, they still suffered a secondary injury. So what to say? Well, what stands out to me is although these delayed injuries do exist, they are in fact extremely rare. These authors did an extensive literature review of all the index material up to 2015 and could only find 41 such cases of neurological deterioration. Furthermore, as we briefly discussed, the majority of these injuries likely would not have been prevented by spinal immobilization, and some happened even despite being in spinal immobilization as well. Number two. Does rigid cervical immobilization prevent injury? Now I'll go ahead and start with the conclusion, which is, to this date, there is zero evidence that rigid immobilization of the cervical spine prevents injury from happening. One study that has looked into this was performed by Hosfeld and al. and called Out-of-Hospital Spinal Immobilization, Its Effect on Neurologic Injury, published in 1998. The authors compared blunt trauma patients from the U.S., where spinal immobilization is routine, to patients in Malaysia, where patients were not immobilized for transport. The results showed less neurological disability in the patients who were not immobilized in Malaysia. Now, the authors did do multivariate logistic regression analysis to compare these patients, but the bottom line is, regardless, this is a prospective study in two different countries comparing apples and oranges. Now, this is obviously not good data to convince us that cervical spine immobilization is useless. Now, knowing though that no data exists to confirm that cervical spinal immobilization leads to better patient outcomes, some research has set out to demonstrate that cervical collars restrict cervical motion. It is therefore inferred in these studies that restricting cervical motion must be good to prevent spinal injury. But thinking this way can lead us down the wrong path, as we have discussed in episode 5, since restricting cervical motion is not a patient-oriented outcome. Now, I will not go over what that means exactly, but do check out episode 5 if you do not remember or have not checked it out yet. Nonetheless, let's check out some of these studies. First, in 2011, Horodiski and all published an article entitled, Cervical Collars Are Insufficient for Immobilizing Unstable Cervical Spine Injury. Now, this is a great article because the title says it all. Cervical collars are insufficient. There you go, enough said. But looking at the study, the authors compared cervical motion in cadavers immobilized with either two different collars and cadavers immobilized with nothing, and they found no statistical difference in range of motion. Full disclosure, I unfortunately can't access the full version of the article to take a closer look at their methodology, and especially to see what the confidence intervals were, but I do think that's still worth mentioning. 
Now more interesting for the wilderness setting is another article in 2014 published by Dixon and all, and they looked at a simulated patient being extricated from an accident scene using different techniques. They found that self-extrication generated less movement of the cervical spine, in some cases up to four times less. So what are we left with here? To sum it up for our second point, cervical collars have not been shown to significantly decrease cervical range of motion, and in one simulated study, asking the patient to self-extricate when feasible actually caused less cervical motion. But what's more important here is regardless of restriction of cervical motion, collars do not completely immobilize the neck. So even if you believe that restricting cervical motion is a good idea to protect the spine, which, let me remind you, has not been demonstrated, we don't even know that cervical collars can do a good job of restricting the neck enough to prevent said injuries. Number three, harms of cervical collars. If the evidence I've presented so far has been far from the definitive, when looking at the benefits of C-spine immobilization, this is not the case when we are looking at their negative side effects. First of all, rigid cervical collars make airway interventions much more difficult. They definitely make intubation more difficult, which most of the time is more of a concern in the hospital. But in the wilderness settings, cervical collars also restrict mouth opening, secretion management, and any form of ventilation, which is a concern. Furthermore, cervical collars have also been shown to increase intracranial pressure. Often, patients with neck trauma also have a head injury. Raising your patient's intracranial pressure can potentially decrease their brain's perfusion, leading to badness. In 1999, Caldenol published a paper showing that measuring CSF, pressure when performing a lumbar puncture, was on average 25 millimeters of mercury higher when the patient had a cervical collar. Now you would be absolutely right to point out that this is not a patient-oriented outcome. And to my knowledge, there is no data showing that cervical collars cause neurological sequelae from brain hypoperfusion. But still important to note. Let's take some time to summarize what we've gone over so far. First off, the concern for worsening spinal injuries in patients with neck pain is legit, although very rare making the discussion on how to prevent these injuries from happening very important. But as we've said, the cause of these injuries is uncertain. In the article we reviewed, more than half of the patients who did have these delayed injuries had them while lying down in a hospital stretcher with rigid immobilization in place, and this did not prevent them from getting worse. Next, we moved on to trying to identify any convincing data showing us that rigid cervical collars reduce spinal injury. This data does not exist. And even when researchers looked at how much cervical motion was restricted using a rigid collar, the results were underwhelming. Furthermore, restriction of cervical motion is not what our patients want. They want normal neurological function, and it is unclear that restricting cervical motion will lead to this. Finally, cervical collars cause badness. They make airway interventions more difficult, which, by the way, even if you protected the spine perfectly, but the patient is having respiratory insufficiency, this likely won't lead to a happy ending for your patient. And they also increase intracranial pressure, though the impact of this on patient's neurological recovery is unclear. One last additional point I would like to make before moving on is that in the wilderness setting, an additional harm of rigid collars is the complexity of the rescue that is required once it is deemed necessary. Just think of our mountain biker in the intro, who is getting hypothermic, is diabetic, and hasn't eaten any snacks in a while. Cervical spine immobilization here may be beneficial, but it is unclear. But what is clear is that hypothermia and hypoglycemia will cause harm if they occur in our patient. 
So with this in mind, let's move on to an approach for C-spine injuries in the wilderness. Before we dive in here, understand that the opinions expressed here are my own and that the opinions presented here are not a substitution for professional training. Furthermore, you should practice as directed or agreed upon depending on your local institutions. Okay, with that out of the way, scenario number one. Clearing the cervical spine. Some patients will complain of neck pain after sustaining trauma. In certain conditions, the history and examination of these patients may lead us to rule out any significant cervical pathology in the field, or in other words, quote, unquote, clear their C-spine. A few decision tools can aid you with these decisions. Two that I like to use in my practice are the Nexus C-spine and the Canadian C-spine tools. Unless you use these regularly, I would suggest having the rules handy, either as a reminder note or on an app on your iPhone, such as MedCalc. Let's start off with Nexus. This decision tool states that if your patient has any of the following, a focal neurological deficit, an altered level of arousal, intoxication present, a distracting injury, or midline tenderness present, he or she warrants further imaging and the cervical spine cannot be cleared. A few things to mention here. First, you need to respect the distracting injury point here. I have once seen someone with a pretty bad foot injury who did not complain of any back pain, nor have any pain identified on his thorough examination, only to go and have a lumbar spine fracture identified further on the evaluation and during the workup, once the dust has settled. What consists of a distracting injury is not clear. If someone is yelling in pain with bones sticking out through their skin, yes, that is distracting. And if someone had their skin pinched and now they're okay, that is not. But in between lies a huge spectrum of pathology and different people who will experience these symptoms differently as well. So your judgment is important in defining what is considered quote-unquote distracting. Another point I'd like to talk about is the midline tenderness included in the decision tool. If you have a look at the Canadian C-spine tool, Someone with a low risk factor, such as walking at the scene after the accident, may develop midline tenderness when assessed and still be deemed okay to proceed with the decision tool and may not require any imaging and could still have his C-spine quote-unquote cleared. The whole Canadian C-spine algorithm is more complicated and uses a stepwise approach. I do not think there is much value in trying to describe it here on a podcast, but instead do check it out. So, To sum it up, let's say we have a patient who went over the bars mountain biking, he has no significant injuries, got up and walked to you without any problem, he is not altered, not intoxicated, has no focal neurological signs, but 10 minutes after the fall starts complaining of some paraspinal neck pain without any midline pain. Now seeing this patient in the backcountry, I would feel comfortable clearing his spine. Now, in a hospital setting, anyone in who you can't clear their spine will need some more investigations and imaging. In the wilderness setting, though, an additional point of interest would be to identify not only who can be cleared on the spot, but also who has a high risk of spinal injury and who has a lower risk of spinal injury to help us make the decision about extrication and evacuation. Wilderness Medical Associates gives a course in which they do an excellent job of tackling this difficult topic. In their course, they break down suspected spine injuries into the low risk and high risk. Low risk. In the low-risk group, they include, and I quote, patients with a normal mental status, pain and tenderness that are mild, that can move and weight bear easily, and they have no abnormal neurological findings. High-risk. In the high-risk group, they include unreliable patients, 
patients with severe pain, deformity on examination, or any new onset neurological symptoms, and are unable to move and weight bear easily. The goal of dividing patients into these two groups is to help you figure out what needs to be done in terms of evacuation. Patients in the low-risk group may not be able to have their spine cleared, but they may be considered for self-extraction on a less urgent basis, which could prevent them from being spine-packaged and needing a more risky rescue. So what have we gone over here? First of all, worsening spinal injuries are rare, but do exist after an initial injury to the spine. Therefore, attempting to prevent such devastating injuries from happening is an important objective to pursue. Unfortunately, though, rigid cervical immobilization has not shown any benefit in preventing these injuries from happening. Furthermore, this immobilization does harm your patients by making airway interventions more difficult, increasing intracranial pressure, to name a few. In the wilderness, I would also add that cervical spine immobilization will add a layer of complexity to the evacuation and rescue and can be detrimental if it leads to other medical issues such as hypothermia becoming a problem. Keeping this in mind, we moved on to an approach for cervical injuries in the backcountry. Number one, if you can clear someone's spine on the spot and you are trained to do so, this is the ideal situation. Now, if a patient's spine cannot be cleared, risk stratify the likelihood of a spinal injury to aid you in the decision on how and when to evacuate the patient. Other circumstances, such as your location, proximity of care, the weather, and other factors will need to be considered to make this decision. Ultimately, remember that there is no evidence showing benefit to rigid C-spine collars. That being said, absence of proof is not proof of absence of any benefit of these collars, and C-spine collars are considered the standard of care now in many institutions. Okay, so there you go. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to keep your crampons in the ice.